We believe the Bible is a unified, uninterrupted story that leads to Jesus. From beginning to end, no matter what you read, you have got to understand that everything is always about Jesus. And I'm telling you, there's going to come a day, and we're living in it kind of right now, where people are going to come up with their own ideology, their own interpretation of what they think Scripture is. And in the reality, if it ever gets away from the person of Jesus and what he did when he came, how he died, and how he rose from the dead, they're going to try to point that you can think good thoughts and you can just will your way to a good life. And that's hogwash. It's stupid. I don't know why I use the word hogwash right there. I really don't use that, but I said it. Uh, we got some people from Bakersfield here today, so got to make sure I get some of that in there. I see you. I know who you are. I know when you walk in the room. So it takes everything within me on the drum, st- on the drum set not to go to a four-step on my snare count, but um, I-, I almost came close, Dave. But, but here's the deal. Here's the deal. It's going to get important because I want you to mark my words, not because I'm some prophet. I'm just a pastor. I love to preach God's word, and I love relationship. But you watch. There's going to come a time where the name of Jesus is going to get taken out of what many Christians believe. It's always going to be about Jesus. Say it's all about Jesus. All right, good. You said it, so you got to go. All right, so here's the deal. Let me give you the outline for today so you kind of know where we're going. We're looking at the book of Judges. We ended Joshua. Now we're going to Judges. I'm going to give you an overview of the book because you've got to understand what God was doing. By the way, what God was doing, every single judge, all 11 of them in the book of Judges, picked by God. And when you go through the book of Judges and you have in your Read Scripture app, man, you're going to look at some pretty messed up judges. Listen to me. God chose them. And if we're honest, you're messed up too, and God chose you and still will choose you over and over and over. Aren't you thankful for that? So we'll talk about these judges and the people that God chose during this time. Then from there, we're going to jump to a guy by the name of Samson. In my preparation this week, I really felt that was the judge that we should focus on. And there's a lot that we can learn from all 11 of these guys, but I really feel Samson has something to show us here today, and I think it's going to be a benefit to us. So let's first understand some things about judges. Okay, first, we have to understand that these judges of the Old Testament oversaw the nation of Israel from the time that Joshua died to the time that the monarchy is going to be established. Now, the monarchy is just another way of saying kings. As you guys know in your Bible, after we get through the judges, God now decides, okay, now it's time to raise up a king. His name is Saul. It eventually goes to David. It eventually goes to Solomon. So kings start to come into place. But before that, there's this huge spiritual gap, especially for for the people and the children of Israel. Because remember, Joshua was the leader that the whole nation of Israel served God while he was in command. We learned this last week. And even after Joshua left at the age of 110, his elders took over and the nation served God. But when we get to this part right here, we begin to see that there's a lot of things beginning to take place, and Judges covers this this chaotic moment in time. I'm going to show you. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. It says, in those days, everyone say those days. And by the way, those days are a lot like these days. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone, watch here, did what was right in his own eyes. How many of you guys know that's very dangerous when you, when you begin to determine what you think is right in your own eyes? Usually that's based off of feelings. So what's going on? Well, the society of Canaan were now living intermingled with other nations, and this was a mixture of believing and pagan people. So there's this intermingling going on. And so it was a time, much like ours, 
where God's people face the choice between looking to God as their Lord or following the spirit and the preference of the day. We would call that just going with the flow. That would, we would call that, well, I'm just gonna do it because I, I feel it's the right deal. How many of you guys know your emotions will mess you up? We say this all the time. Listen to me. <laughs> Lady on the front row is like, man, if I could put up both hands and both my legs at the same time, I would. Listen to me. Your emotions do something. They serve you, but they don't master you. Your emotions should serve you. So, for example, if fear is to come upon you, it serves a purpose. Draw closer to God. That emotion served me. Um, but when you allow your emotions to, to master you, well, then you forget things like when Jesus said, do not worry about anything, what you will eat, what you will drink, and what you will wear, for tomorrow has enough trouble or much thought for itself, correct? So what I'm saying is, is you don't do that. They're, they're doing this here. We also see that there's a crazy cycle taking place, and through the whole course of the book of Judges, remember this is an overlay, there's a cycle taking place. Here's how it would go. They would serve the Lord, and they'd be blessed. Then they'd become apathetic, and they'd fall into compromise. Then they would end up enslaved and in trouble. Then they would cry out to God in repentance. And what would God do? He would deliver them. Listen, if you were raised in church, and I mean this to be true, I, I talk with more 40, 50, and 60-year-olds, and I say this um, very cautiously and with love. You, you were taught as a, as a God that there's an angry God. And God's a lot like, really bad analogy, but just go with me. There's kids in the room, even though this guy's not real. God's like Santa Claus. You do wrong, he wipes you off the good list, and he puts you over here on the naughty list. So here's, what you, here's the trap you fell into. I got to get God's approval. Some of you know what I'm talking about. That's how you were raised. You did something wrong in school, you got the finger in your face. God's upset with you. God's mad with you. You didn't have a proper uh, grow, uh, um, childhood growing up, right? So you equate how a father would treat you, and you think that God is the same way. It's inaccurate. When people read of God of the Old Testament, we're going to read a scripture here in a minute where it says God got angry in anger, and he did some things in anger. So what we do is we take one scripture and we say, well, that must be how God is. So when I do wrong, God's disgusted with me. God's angry with me. God has turned his, his back on me. But that's not God. This cycle that these people go through, the children of Israel and judges, every single time, God took them back. If you don't have a picture of God loving you, then you don't have the proper picture of God. Because God is a loving God. He's a caring God. So when people say things because they don't understand the Bible and they don't read it in full context and they just want to really probably say what somebody else said as a cop-out, God's not an angry God. He loves you. Amen. And he loves me. That, that's the God. Listen, why would you want to serve a God who's always angry at you? Why would you want to serve a God that you have to gain his approval? Because here's my question. How high do you have to go to get God's approval? You've heard me say this before. How, how long did you read your Bible today? Five minutes? Whew. God of the universe, and all you can give him is five minutes? My goodness gracious, how long did you pray today? Well, I don't know. I think I started praying, and then I got distracted by something else, and 30 minutes later, I realized I wasn't praying. <sighs> man, I tell you what, man, if God could have a conversation with you, man, he'd tell you all the ways you're getting it wrong. How high do I have to, do I have to climb to get God's approval? See, Christianity, you can take any other religion. Christianity 
is the only quote-unquote religion where a God came down to you and me. Whereas every other religion, you got to work your way up to their God. God says, I come to you. He's a loving God. So God always did this for them. They'd turn back to God, and then over time, what would happen? They, They would begin to rebel, to compromise. Then they'd find themselves in bondage. Then God would deliver them, and then they'd be thankful, and it was a cycle, cycle. I'm going to show you here in a minute just how it works, but it was crazy, okay? Here's one of the lessons that we can learn from the book of Judges if you want to write this down. There's the danger of serving God halfway, and it is a danger. See if I can get this right. The definition of lukewarm is, God, I believe in you. I'm just not excited about you anymore. That's a half-heart way of serving God. See, following Moses, Joshua was an amazing leader like we talked about. But when he died, his passing left a a huge spiritual vacuum for all of Israel. And so what happened was, is, is the people, they started cutting spiritual corners. They started to rationalize and started to come up with some seemingly good reason for compromise. They started cutting corners. Go go with me to Judges chapter 2 verse 1. Watch this here. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum, Bochim, that one, and said, I led you from Egypt. I brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, watch here, I will never break my covenant with you. This is God speaking. I'll never break it. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. And you shall tear down their altars. But notice what he says. But you have not obeyed my voice. And then God asks the question, why why have you done this? See, what's so important about this is you have to understand, here's how Israel disobeyed God. This, This is why it was so important. It was God's desire for his people to build a home country where they could serve God with all of their hearts. It was his purpose. God's idea for it was that the surrounding pagan nations would be able to see the true God through the lives of his people. So you can see why this is a big deal to God. It was part of his plan. If I move you here to the promised land of Canaan and you start to serve me with all of your heart, here's what happens. It speaks to everybody else around. So I need you to serve with all your heart. But despite being told by God to tear down the altars of every idol of first God in their homeland, what does Israel do? They decided to figure out a way to settle in and that the idols remain. That's the danger of serving with half your heart. He just said, look, if you love me, remove them. Get them out. They didn't do it. So to be clear, the purpose of God telling them to break down the altars to idols was so that Israel would be able to live in covenant faithfulness to the Lord. Here's what God is saying. He's saying, I don't want you entering into covenants with pagans. What is pagans? People who don't want to serve God, don't love God. That could dilute your surrender to me. So I want you to get rid of this. I don't want you to intermarry with pagans and have confusion in your home life. I don't want you to serve their gods because there is only one true God. That's what God's saying. He was saying that if you do that, your life is a testimony to the world, but they didn't heed God's voice, which brings me to point number two. This is God's response to disobedience. 
Now watch carefully with me here. The Bible says in Judges chapter 2, verse 14, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. You ever got really mad at someone before? I mean really mad? I mean hot, angry mad? I mean lose your sanity mad? Can't even get words out of your mouth mad? Your hands start shaking mad? Happened a couple weeks ago. Don't look at me that way, by the way. Don't judge me. You're in church. Get the speck out of here. No, I'm just joking. Don't, don't do that. But man, we live two blocks over on Highland Street and whatever it is about that street and probably, you know, fast cars and, and younger people, they love to speed by my house. And, you know, usually my wife, along with the Holy Spirit, but sometimes the Holy Spirit sounds a lot like my wife, um, this car, she, she knows every time it happens because she can hear me even from the house. When they go speeding by my house, I yell as loud as I can, slow down. And it usually results in people telling me I'm number one. And, but they keep going until, until I got in my truck. And by the way, I was going to my chiropractor appointment. I was not stalking them or following. It just so happened that at the same time they were stopped at the light, I was stopped at the light. And I figured since we're there and his window is down, my window wasn't down. I don't have power windows. So I had to lean over. This is how far I was going to take this. And I had to row my window down. I was, I was making eye contact with the guy. And I was like, hey, I just, I really wish you would just slow down because you were, you were on my street and you probably heard me yell at you. And yes, I was yelling at you, not because I was mad. I just wanted to make sure that you could hear me, but I was mad and I repent for lying right there, but you need to slow down, sir. I cannot repeat what was said to me, <laughs> but I got real hot. The other night, it happens again. You would think I learned my lesson. Again, don't look at me that way. I have feelings. They're real. <laughs> this time, went past. I saw it, but I also noticed the brakes went on. So I'm thinking maybe he wants to have a friendly conversation. I would love to. So I started to walk, and I, then I realized that he was turning into the apartment complex two streets down, which I thought was a great opportunity because now he was going to step out of his truck and we can talk like rational human beings. And so as I began to, I, was I running? Yeah, man, I was running. I was running. As I began to run, the, the, the words of my wife, Richard, which usually when she says Richard, yes, thank you, ma'am. Ushers, there's this lady on the front row. She's being very, very loud. And, no, I'm just joking. Hi, love you. So I went down, and lucky for him, he wasn't there. So I had a conversation with myself on what I would have said to him if I would have had a conversation, which I know you guys have all done, especially if you're married. You've had the conversation in your mind and how it would go. And then luckily, you don't do it because it just wouldn't be good. So the Lord was, he was hot against Israel. So watch here. So he delivered them into the hands of the plunders who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before the enemies. And wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against their calamity, as the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn to them. Watch here. And they were greatly distressed. It wasn't God's doing. It was their doing. Israel moves from complacency to compromise and begins to worship other gods. The Bible tells us that God becomes angry with them and it's a huge downward spiral with the focus of other gods and idols. I want you to see what Timothy Keller said because it's so true. He says, the greatest danger is not atheism, 
the greatest danger is that we ask God to coexist with idols. If we bring that to our terms, it's when we ask God to coexist with the things that we don't want to surrender because we would rather hold on to them. Whether it's our pride, our, our, our likes, God, I sure want all of you, just not that part. It's dangerous. Because what's happening is you're saying, God, I'll give you some of me, but Lord, you can't, you can't have all of me. This is mine. Can I just be blunt? I don't know why I asked that question because I'm probably going to say it anyways. <laughs> Anything good that you have is not of your own doing. It's of God's. Because the Bible says all good things come from above. So when you think you've done something great, and I mean this to myself too, and you think you're all of that, and you've got life figured out, and you're like, I did this, I built this, I made this life. No, you didn't. The grace of God built your life. And so that's who gets the glory. Some of you are clapping. Some of you are trying to chew on that. You didn't. I'm a self-made millionaire. If you're a believer, no, you're not. God gave you that gift. Man, I, I, I tell you, inside of myself, I ain't a good husband. I don't feel like a great dad. But because of God, I do feel like I'm a great husband, and I do feel like I'm a great dad. But in and of my own self, and of ourselves, if we're honest, we got some very selfish ambitions, don't we? Don't look at me that way. We all do. Man, it's God in you. Listen, when the Bible talks about how the heart is, is wicked above all else, can you just let that sit in for a moment? Inside of us, guys, without Christ, even at our men's, our men's gathering yesterday, man, our hearts are stone. So when we accept Jesus into our life as our Lord and our Savior, he takes that heart of stone and he gives it a heart of flesh so he can deposit greatness into it. But it's only because of God. So God has got to be at the center there's no mix and match spirituality here. I mean this respectfully. You're either with God or you're not. You've got to pick a side. That's what it comes down to. It's not a really popular message these days. But it is what it is. It's like your marriage. You're either all in or you're all out. Yeah. How many of you guys know that in between ain't going to work? Yeah. All right, number three. God's response to, to disobedience is then to raise up judges. So this whole thing begins... They serve God half-heartedly, so God has to deal with the disobedience, but then to help them, this is kind of that overview of judges, it's a very long introduction, he says, okay, let's put some judges in place. So, there's 11 judges, but let's talk about Samson as we close out our time today and bring this around third base to home. When I say the name Samson, there's some things that probably come to mind for most of us if you were raised in church, right? We've even played the video in here before. Big, strong big bulky buff guy doing crazy good things super long hair and we also know that one story of delilah right we've all got that one down we got delilah down now some people have images of a massive bodybuilder type but we don't really know if that's the case because samson wasn't supposed to be the picture of the ultimate male he was supposed to be the picture of what god could do in his people through the power of his spirit so samson comes uh, towards the story, literally at the end of the book of Judges, he's the last judge specifically talked about here in the book. And, and by that, we could just come to this conclusion that Israel's continuous cycle of disobedience, watch here, is now permanent. 
This is how long it lasts. For 330 years in the reign of these judges. 330. Samson comes at the very end of that. That's a long time. And again and again, the same pattern. Fellowship with God, idolatry, enslavement, repentance, deliverance. Now we would think in the first few chapters of Judges, well, they'll learn their lesson. If you read it, you know. Like, okay, surely they've got to learn from this one. They don't. Again, it's over and it's over and it's over and it's over. Judges 13.1, and again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord, watch here, delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, out of all of these judges and all of those cycles of which they did wrong, this is the longest one. Okay, recap, 40. What's it mean in the Bible? It's the duration of testing, preparation. Jesus was led into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted by the devil. David and Goliath, how many times or how many days did Goliath come out? and try to taunt and get the, the, the Israel to fight, 40 days. Anytime you see the number 40 in the Bible, it is a period of testing and preparation. For 40 years, it takes place. And God says, okay, I've got to begin to go with this. Now, the Philistines, man, they're bad people. They're sophisticated in weaponry. They're sophisticated in architecture. They're sophisticated in culture. And by the way, unspeakably cruel. All of the wealth that they got was from pirating. They were stealers. They would go to other places, kill, and they would steal everything back. They're superior to Israel in every single way, or so they thought. Judges chapter 13, verse 2. Now, there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites, must be named Dana, whose name was Mona, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, indeed, now you are barren and have not borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now, I want you to notice something here real quick, especially if you read through Judges a little bit slower. I want you to notice what's missing between verses 1 and verses 2 here in Judges 13. Here's what's missing. In every other chapter of Judges, where we see the story of a new judge being raised up to deliver Israel, we have always seen these words. You can go back and check it for yourself. And Israel cried out to the Lord for deliverance. And then a judge came. Go back and check it. We call that fact checking. Fact check me. And if I got it wrong, find me and tell me. But you can go back. I looked at it. Every single time they cry out for deliverance, but this time there's no crying out and there's no repentance. Now watch here. It's as though Israel has fallen so far that if there's going to be deliverance, it's not going to be because they seek God. It's going to be because God sought them. Another attribute of God coming after his people. He says, wow, 12 times you've cried out to me. All this begins to happen, God's looking down. You're not crying out to me this time. That's how bad it got. So God in his love says, okay, I'm going to go down and I'm going to take care of this. So Samson is born and there's a lot of things that we can learn. I'm going to kind of go through this a little bit. Judges 13, 4, we see that there's this Nazarite vow taking place. 
Please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink. Don't eat anything unclean. We also know not cutting his hair. Okay, so three major rules. Hair, wine, dead things. Now normally, normally, they would commit to this thing for a period of time. I want you to watch how important this is. Samson's a big character. He committed to this vow for his lifetime. So if you can imagine Samson in your mind, I, I want you to kind of think um, Duck Dynasty meets ZZ Top. Does that make sense? There's your visual. That's what's going on. I mean, his hair's growing long. He, can, he can't shave. Beard's going down. Hair's going down. Everything's going down. Got a lot going on. So there's a sentence in verse 5, though, that tips us off about something. And I'm going to conclude our time, but I'm going to kind of put it out there. Notice the words in Judges 13, 5. And he shall, what's that word say? Begin. Everyone say begin. And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. My opinion, I believe this word right here, begin, is the most important word in the whole book of Judges. I'll get to that at the end. So then he grows up. He gets all strong. We, we know the story. He's a grown man. He goes to another city, Timnah. Everyone say Timnah. T-I-M-N-A-H, which, by the way, is known as the land of wine. Think about this for a moment. Timnah is known as the place of wine. The Nazarite vow, he's not to drink. It's also a place of the Philistines, who, by the way, are the people that have enslaved them. There's no wisdom here. He's going down to a place where he can't even enjoy the fruit of that land and what it produces. Oh, and by the way, he's going right into, right into to enemy territory. How many of you guys know that's not a really good idea? But he goes. So we know that he goes down. He, he sees a lady. You know, Samson's pretty strong on the outside, but on the inside, he, he's weak. So he goes down, Judges 14.3, and Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she pleases me well. Samson, I'm telling you, doesn't care about wisdom. He doesn't care about what his parents think. And he doesn't really care about what God has to say. He wants what he wants. We also know he's a man of strength. He's attacked by a lion. He kills it with his bare hands. He's tricked by some Philistines, so he takes vengeance upon some of them, kills their people. Kills a thousand men with the donkey's jawbone. Impulsive. And not only that, he falls in love with godless women. But now he's actually mixing it up with prostitutes. Guys, he's a judge. He's called to judge God's people. But he's like, you know what? Just going to do my own deal. So we can, we can understand that he's born with the holy purpose. He's consecrated with a vow. He has everything going for him. And he thinks he'll be fine without God's blessing on his life. And the end of the story is he eventually dies. He gets captured. He decides to play games with Delilah. Lays down, wakes up. He's got no hair. His strength is gone. He wakes up thinking, oh, I'll just go out like I always have. He was tricking them with all this different stuff. He's like, oh, I got this, except this time when he woke up, his spirit was gone. His strength was gone. So I really think there's three things that we can learn from the life of Samson as we now officially close. 
You know any good pastor will close 15 times. I'm just trying to be a good pastor today. There's three things we learned from the life of Samson. Number one, our own worst enemy is ourselves. So we see from the life of Samson. How was Samson his own worst enemy? He was impulsive. It didn't matter if it would hurt other people. It didn't matter if it wasn't God's will. It didn't even matter if it was sin. All that mattered to him was satisfying an impulse. Proverbs 25, 28, whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. You've got to control your impulse. Listen, if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to say no to what you want and yes to what God wants. It's the only way to do so. He was compromising. We know that. He wasn't keeping the vows. We also know he was unteachable. No one could persuade him. He knows best. A little side note. Do you notice that when Samson goes to do something, and I'll, I wish I had a better word for it, not smart. I'll just call it not smart, or I'll just call it stupid. You know, every time he went to go do something stupid, he was always by himself. Did you notice that? Isolation is very dangerous. When you don't have people in your life to help you become the best you that you can be, and you're not teachable, you'll never be the best you could be. Isolation is where the enemy gets you. You've got to have some people in your life. Do you have some people in your life who are speaking into your life? You've got to get some godly counsel. Proverbs 18.1, a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire, and he rages against all wise judgment. Sounds a lot like Samson. He was also full of a lot of pride. Notice, you never see Samson giving God the glory. He was selected by God, but he never gave God glory for anything. He felt entitled to use God's blessings for his own purposes. That's where his strength came from. So number one, we're our own worst enemies ourselves. Number two, this is what I love, though, is that when you're ready, God's ready. Oh, I love that about this story. Man, Samson's hair is gone. He wakes up. His strength is gone. He becomes a spectacle. They put him out in the middle. Man, it's a heartbreaking story, to be honest. Yeah, sure, it, it ends with God restoring his strength for one last feat of strength. But man, the decline of Samson's life, it's kind of tragic. I mean, you can write this down and go back and read it later. I'll just paraphrase it for sake of time. But Judges 16, 23 through 31, Samson just calls out to God. He says, man, give me strength for one more. You know the crazy part about that story? Is in one final act, Samson kills more people in one act. The enemy, by the way, the Philistines, in one act than he did in his whole existence. You want to know Why? Because when Samson was finally able to come to himself and turn back to God, God was ready for him. And listen, you, you, you might be in here or watching online and you might think, man, it's just too late for me and God to have this, this relationship that maybe you're hearing today or experiencing or watching other people do. It's never too late. God's always ready for you. The Bible says that God is long-suffering, not willing that any would perish, but all would come 
to repentance. He's long-suffering towards you. Now, I'll even say this too, man. If you're in here today and you've got some stuff going on in your life that you just won't deal with, he's long-suffering. And when you're ready to give that over to him, he's going to take it. He's going to give you strength. He did it for Samson. I don't know about you, but I read this and go, homeboy don't deserve it. Messing with God's presence and anointing and power and using it for... You ever just look sometimes at other people? It's probably the wrong spirit, so I'm trying not to do it, but maybe we've all done it, but you're just like, man, they don't, they don't deserve it. And then you start to realize, man, I don't really deserve much either. And this is my, my last point, and I think the best point. So we are our own worst enemy. When you're ready, God's always ready. But man, this is good. Number three, the world needed someone that was greater than Samson. Okay, now put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites real quick, okay? Samson's just done this amazing feat. He's killed, right? All this comes down, but Samson is killed too. Now go back to being a children of Israel, okay? We've got Moses, we've got Joshua. They're gone. All the judges are gone. If, if you're the Israelites reading this story, you're probably thinking to yourself, what now? This is the final judge. What are we supposed to do? You ever watch a, a show and it ends and you're like, that's it? What, what happened? You ever watch a really good show and they end it like forever and it brings you no clarity on the closing and you realize you've wasted like eight seasons deep into this deal and there's no, like it, listen, if you ever watched Lost, I almost, I almost threw my TV away. Maybe I shouldn't care that much about TV. <laughs> that, that's like, for all you sports people. That's like getting to the Super Bowl and then the, the morning of saying, well, you know what? We're just not going to see what happens today. I've waited 17 weeks to see what's going to happen today. What do you mean nothing's going to happen today? Especially if it's your team. Go Raiders. That's what I'm talking about. You can stay, ma'am. Air fist bump. There you go. It's just really how it ends. There's got to be more. And then the best part. 1,100 years later, who shows up? The true deliverer of all? Jesus. Jesus shows up. Go, go back. Remember that verse? 13.5. Samson was begin to deliver Israel, begin, who finishes it? Jesus does. The Bible is a unified, uninterrupted story that leads to Jesus. So Jesus goes here. If you're paying close attention, you'll notice a lot of similarities between Jesus and Samson, both born miraculously. Like Samson, Jesus had incredible strength, power over demons, disease, and death. Like Samson, Jesus was betrayed by someone who acted like his friend, but handed him over to his, his oppressors. Like Samson, Jesus was chained up, tortured, put on public display, and mocked. Like Samson, Jesus would die with his arms outstretched. Like Samson, through his death, though it looked like he was defeated, he was actually bringing defeat to the enemy. That's a good one. But unlike Samson, Jesus wasn't put in chains for his sin, but he was put in chains for our sin, 
Samson was a strong man made weak by his own sin. Jesus was the mighty God who voluntarily became weak to save us from the chains of our sin. Everything points to Jesus.